welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is episode 151, Bells and Books. The music for the intro and outro for this podcast is from Come Listen to My Story from Christmas with Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, But before I begin, I better get something out of the way. I uploaded to my podcast host what was supposed to be the end of it, episode 149, the last episode in the A Christmas Carol uh, series. For some reason, the episode online was Rare Christmas Books, episode 144. That was an episode that I had already uploaded. In other words, the episode was titled The End of It, but its contents were those of the podcast episode Rare Christmas Books. I'm not exactly sure where the screw-up occurred or how it occurred, but anyway... I must admit that I was a bit hard on myself. I mean, how could I be so stupid? I'm all this over and over in my head, probably worrying about it too much, just getting more and more upset. I ended up deciding to change the next episode, an episode that was originally supposed to deal with the pit and the pendulum, to an episode that deals with the end of it from A Christmas Carol. I want to be sure that I got that out there so that you could at least reach some conclusion to the, uh, to the story of A Christmas Carol. And then uh, this time I'm going to include a passage about what many scholars believe is the main message of A Christmas Carol. But now on to uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was one of the most respected American poets in the 19th century. Edgar Allan Poe actually wrote to Longfellow in May 1841 of his, quote, fervent admiration, which his genius has inspired in me, unquote, and later called him unquestionably the best poet in America. That's high praise, especially coming from Poe. But as Edgar Poe's reputation increased as a critic. He later publicly accused Longfellow of plagiarism in uh, what Poe biographers call the Longfellow War. And, I mean, really, there was, from what I understand, there was no reason uh, to accuse him of plagiarism. This is basically uh, something Poe did for publicity's sake. Poe wrote that Longfellow was a determined imitator and a dexterous adapter of the ideas of other people. Uh, Poe's accusations, as I've kind of said, was they were more like a, a publicity stunt, kind of like a, a Britney Spears picking a fight with a Kardashian. But Longfellow was apparently a really classy guy and never really responded publicly. After Poe's death, Longfellow wrote, The harshness of his criticisms I have never attributed to anything but the irritation of a sensitive nature chafed by some indefinite sense of wrong. That's a nice way of putting it. In the middle of the Civil War, Longfellow wrote a poem called Christmas Bells, a poem you might know as the carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. In the poem, Longfellow contrasts the sound of Christmas bells 
with the even louder sound of cannon fire from the battlefields. Cannon fire that seems to almost drown the bell's call for peace on earth. I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how, as as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The two literary works that comprise the rest of this podcast episode are related somewhat to Christmas and Edgar Allan Poe. I saw a list online where Poe's classic poem, The Bells, is actually included as a Christmas poem, although personally I think that interpretation could only be legitimately applied to the first stanza with its references to happiness and the icy air of night. For the rest of the poem, I think calling The Bells a Christmas poem is really stretching it. I mean, what do you think? The bells. Here are the sledges with the bells, silver bells. What a world of merriment their melody foretells. How they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle in the icy air of night, while the stars that oversprinkle all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight, keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme to the tintinabulation that so musically wells from the bells, 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 from the jingling and the tinkling of the bells. Hear the mellow wedding bells, golden bells. What a world of happiness their harmony foretells. Through the balmy air of night, how they ring out their delight from the molten golden notes and all in tune. What a liquid ditty floats to the turtle dove that listens while she gloats on the moon. Oh, from out the sounding cells, what a gush of euphony voluminously wells. How it swells, how it dwells on the future. How it tells of the rapture that impels to the swinging and the ringing of the bells, 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 of the bells, 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 to the rhyming and the chiming of the bells. Hear the loud alarum bells, brazen bells. What a tale of a terror now their turbulency tells. In the startled ear of night, how they scream at their affright. Too much horrified to speak, they can only shriek, shriek, out of tune in a clamorous appealing to the mercy of the fire. In a mad expostulation with a deaf and frantic fire, leaping higher, 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 with a desperate desire and a resolute endeavor. Now, now to sit or never... 
by the side of the pale-faced moon. Oh, the bells, 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 what a tale their terror tells of despair, how they clang and clash and roar, what a horror they outpour on the bosom of the palpitating air. Yet the ear... It fully knows by the twanging and the clanging how the danger ebbs and flows. Yes, the ear distinctly tells in the jangling and the wrangling how the danger sinks and swells by the sinking or the swelling in the anger of the bells, of the bells, 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 in the clamor and the clangor of the bells. Hear the tolling of the bells, iron bells, What a world of solemn thought their monody compels. In the silence of the night, how we shiver with affright at the melancholy menace of their tone. For every sound that floats from the rust within their throats is a groan. And the people, ah, the people, they that dwell up in the steeple all alone, and who tolling, tolling, tolling in that muffled monotone, feel a glory and so rolling on the human heart of stone. They are neither man nor woman. They are neither brute nor human. They are ghouls, and their king it is who tolls as he rolls, 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 rolls a pean from the bells, and his merry bosom swells with the pean of the bells, and he dances and he yells, keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme to the pean of the bells of the bells, keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme to the throbbing of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the sobbing of the bells, keeping time, 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 as he nails, 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 in a happy runic rhyme, to the rolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the tolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the moaning and the groaning of the bells. And now a set of Poe by George Aid. Waterby remarked to his wife, I'm still tempted by that set of Poe. I saw it in the window today, marked down to fifteen dollars. Uh, yes, said Mrs. Waterby with a sudden gasp of emotion. Yes, I believe I'll, I'll have to get it. I wouldn't if I were you, Alfred, she said. You have so many books now. I know I have, my dear, but I, but I haven't any set of Poe, and that's what I've been wanting for a long time. This edition I'm telling you about is beautifully gotten up. Oh, I I wouldn't buy it, Alfred, she repeated, and there was a note of pleading earnestness in her voice. It's so much money to spend for a few books. Well, I know, but... um, And then he paused for lack of words to express his mortified surprise. Mr. Waterby had tried to be an indulgent husband, he, he took a selfish pleasure in giving and found it more blessed than receiving. Every Saturday, salary day, he turned over to Mrs. Waterby a fixed sum for household expenses. He added to this an allowance for her spending money. He set aside a small amount for, the, uh, for his personal expenses and deposited the remainder in the bank. He flattered himself that he approximated the model husband. Mr. Waterby had no costly habits and no prevailing appetite for anything expensive. Like every other man, he had one or two hobbies, and one of his particular hobbies was Edgar Allan Poe. He believed that Poe, of all American writers, was the one unmistakable 
genius. Now, the word genius had been bandied around the the country until it had come to be applied to a long-haired man out of work or a, a stout lady who writes poetry. In the case of Poe, Mr. Waterby maintained that genius meant one who was not governed by the common mental processes, but who spoke from inspiration, his mind involuntarily taking superhuman flight into the realm of pure imagination, or something of that sort. At any rate, Mr. Waterby liked Poe, and and he wanted a set of Poe. He allowed himself not more than one luxury a year, and he determined that this year the luxury should be a set of Poe. Therefore, imagine the hurt to his feelings when his wife objected to his expending $15 for that which he coveted above anything else in the world. As he went to work that day, he reflected on Mrs. Waterby's conduct. Did she not have her allowance of spending money? Did he ever find fault with her extravagance? Was he an unreasonable husband in asking that he be allowed to spend this small sum for that which would give him many hours of pleasure and which would belong to Mrs. Waterby as much as to him? He told himself that many a husband would have bought the books without consulting his wife. But he, Waterby, had deferred to his wife in all matters touching family finances, and he said to himself, with a tincture of bitterness in his thoughts, that probably he had put himself into the attitude of a mere dependent. For had she not forbidden him to buy a few books for himself? Well, no, she had not forbidden him, but it amounted to the same thing. She had declared that she was firmly opposed to the purchase of Poe. Mr. Waterby wondered if it were possible that he was just beginning to know his wife. Was she a selfish woman at heart? Was she complacent and good-natured only while she was having her own way? Would she prove to be an entirely different sort of woman if, if he should do as many husbands do, spend his income on clubs and cigars and private amusements and give her the pickings of small change? Nothing in Mr. Waterby's experience as a married man has so wrenched his sensibilities and disturbed his faith as Mrs. Waterby's objection to the purchase of a set of Poe. There was but one way to account for it. She wanted all the money for herself, or else she wanted him to put it into the bank so that she could come into it after he... But this, this was too monstrous. However, Mrs. Waterby's conduct helped to give strength to Mr. Waterby's meanest suspicions. Two or three days after the first conversation, she asked, You didn't buy that set of Poe, did you, Alfred? No, I I didn't buy it, he answered, as coldly and with as much much hauteur as possible. He hoped to hear her say, well, well, why don't you go and get it? I'm sure that you want it, and I'd like to see you buy something for yourself once in a while. That would have shown the spirit of a loving and unselfish wife. But she merely said, that's right, don't buy it. And he was utterly unhappy, for he realized 
that he had married a woman who did not love him and who simply desired to use him as a pack horse for all household burdens. As soon as Mrs. Mr. Waterby had learned the horrible truth about his wife, he began to recall little episodes dating back years, and now he pierced them together to convince himself that he was a deeply wronged person. Small at the time and almost unnoticed, they were now accumulating to prove that Mrs. Waterby had no real anxiety for her husband's happiness. Also, Mr. Waterby began to observe her closely, and he believed that he found new evidences of her unworthiness. For one thing, while he was in gloom over his discovery and harassed by doubts of what the future might reveal to him, she was content and even tempered. The holiday season approached, and Mr. Waterby had made a resolution. He decided that if she would not permit him to spend a little money on himself, he would not buy the customary Christmas present for her. Selfishness is a game at which two can play, he said. Furthermore, he determined that if she asked him for any extra money for Christmas, he would say, I'm sorry, my dear, but I can't spare any. I'm so hard up that I can't even afford to buy a few books that I've been wanting a long time. Don't you remember that you told me that I couldn't afford to buy that set of Poe? Could anything be more biting as to sarcasm or more crushing as to logic? He rehearsed this speech and had it all ready for as he pictured to himself her humiliation and surprise at discovering that he had had some spirit after all and a considerable say-so whenever money was involved. Unfortunately for his plan, she did not ask for any extra spending money, and so he had to rely on the other mode of punishment. He would withhold the expected Christmas present. In order that she might fully understand his purpose, he would give presents to both of the children. It was a harsh harsh measure, he admitted, but perhaps it would teach her to have some consideration for the wishes of others. Now, it must be said that Mr. Waterby was not wholly proud of his revenge when he arose on Christmas morning. He felt that he had accomplished his purpose, and he told himself that his motives had been good and pure, but still he was not completely satisfied with himself. He went to the dining room, and there on the table in front of his plate was a long paper box containing ten books each marked Poe. It was the edition he had coveted. What's this, he asked, winking slowly, for his mind could not grasp in one moment the fact of his awful shame. I think you should, <laughs> you ought to know, Alfred, said Mrs. Waterby, flushed and giggling like a schoolgirl. Oh, it was you. My goodness, you had me so frightened. Uh, That day when you spoke of buying them and I told you not to, I was just sure that you suspected something. I I bought them a week before that. Yes, yes, said Mr. Waterby, feeling the salt water in his eyes. At that moment, he had the soul of a wretch being whipped at the stake. 
I was determined not to ask you for any money to pay for your own presence, Mrs. Waterby continued. Do you know I had to save for you and the children out of my regular allowance? Why, last week I nearly starved you, and you never noticed it, as I was afraid you would. No, I didn't notice it, said Mr. Waterby brokenly, for for he was confused and, and giddy. This self-sacrificing angel, and he had bought no Christmas present for her. It, it was a fearful situation, and he, he lied his way out of it. Uh, how do you like your, your present, he asked. Oh, why, I haven't seen it yet, she responded, looking across at him in surprise. You haven't? I told them to send it up yesterday. The children were shouting and laughing over their gifts in the next room, and he felt it his duty to lie for their sake. Well, well, don't tell me what it is, interrupted Mrs. Waterby. Wait till it comes. I'll go after it. He, he did go after it, although he had to drag a jeweler away from his home on Christmas Day and have him open his great safe. The ring which he selected was beyond his means, it is true, but when a man has to buy back his self-respect, the price is never too high. And finally, while Poe, as far as we know, never wrote any work specifically about Christmas, William Shakespeare actually did pen seven lines that mention the celebration of our Savior's birth or as close to the religious significance of Christmas as was allowed on the Elizabethan stage of the time. These acts are from Act 1, Scene 1 of Hamlet. Some says that ever against that season comes, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the birth of dawning singeth all night long, and then, they say... No spirit can walk abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planets strike. No fairy takes. Nor wit, which hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. The next episode of Celebrate Poe is episode 152. And as I've said before, deals with the final section of A Christmas Carol, as well as some perspectives about the story. And the first episode of 2023 will naturally be on January the 1st and is entitled The Pale Blue Eye in Night Mode. I have lots to say about the book on which it is based, and the movie version is supposed to be available by the end of the year. Sources include I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Poe Longfellow and the Institution of Poetry by Virginia Jackson, The Bells from the Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe, and A Set of Poe by George Ade. Oh, yes, uh, a little section from Hamlet by William What's-His-Name. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe.